everyone. Welcome to this new episode of Carolyn Talks. I am your host, Carolyn Heiss, film critic and journalist, and this is my podcast slash YouTube channel where I speak to film creatives about their work, the industry, and what inspires them. And today I am joined by Norm Wilner, who is the acting programmer at, at TIFF. He programs the Canadian and industry program for the 2023 Toronto International Film Festival, which I'm very excited to talk to him about because some of my favorite films from this year are Canadian produced films, so that's exciting. And I also, Norm was a film critic and a journalist, and I don't normally get to interview like film critics for my work, so I'm very excited to talk to him today. So thank you so much for talking to me today, Norm. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes. And as usual, I'd like to have my guests say a bit about themselves and what got them into their line of work. So first, um, talk about being a film critic. How did you become a film critic? Because I know like, my path to becoming a critic is like very different. I had my diploma. I did my diploma in practical studies. And then I was like, you know what? If I'm going to do a job that's going to stress me out, I might as well do a job that I really genuinely love. <laughs> And I love talking about film. And here I am, like seven years later, talking to you. So, like, what was your journey like, Norm? Uh, not nearly as interesting as yours. I, uh, <laughs> my grandfather and his brother-in-law, mm. my great uncle, owned a movie theater. Um, that is I, interesting. When I was a kid, yeah. So uh, until I was about ten, it was in the family, and we would go there after school sometimes, and just. Hang around in the projection booth, and Jonathan Demi said once, like once you find out there's a way to see movies for free, you will do anything you can. You will never stop trying to uh, to to find ways in. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was just being part of that process and seeing film as a physical object. And and once I started seeing film as a physical object, I just sort of dedicated myself to finding ways to be part of it. Um, which worked out to writing reviews for my high school newspaper because they sent you free passes to the previous screenings. And then I went to university for film and, and York University also had a newspaper, The Excalibur. So I wrote for them in 87 and 88. Uh, only lasted a year, bombed out, hated the program. Um, but uh, <laughs> that the, the little capsule reviews of things that I was writing for The Excalibur got me a freelance gig with the Toronto Stars video magazine because they had just launched the uh, video and home entertainment magazine, which was a free magazine, basically just, you know, back when video companies advertised and distributed by huge full page ads, it was incredibly lucrative. So the, the reviews were just sort of the extra thing that people mm. that, that um, newspapers put in in order to justify the ad sales. So I wrote a lot oh, of those. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. By the end of it, the magazine ran for three, three years, I think. And then by 1991, they folded the magazine into the weekly TV guide, the Star Week, which also used to be a thing. And a year after that, they offered me a column, a weekly column instead of the monthly insert, because it was just easier. And I wrote that for 15 years. And while I was writing that, I ended up leveraging myself into other reviewing spots in, in the Toronto Star and then in GTA Today, the free daily, which then became Metro Today, which then became Metro and it was a whole thing. So I wrote for the, I, by the end of that, I was the, national film critic for metro newspapers in canada just because i wrote for the toronto paper but then they would syndicate the reviews mm -hmm. which was nice uh and then in 2008 i joined now magazine after the death of john harkness who was a, a dear friend and it was a terrible way to get a to get a job um but the publisher michael hollett said so not only is john gone but cameron bailey is leaving to join tiff full-time because cameron used to write for now we came up together and can i 
jump in. So I did that and I wrote for now for 14 years until now stopped paying everybody and fell apart because of an ownership change that turned into a, just a disaster. Uh, and that's when I started working on my exit strategy, which was Cameron had just become CEO of TIFF and I was doing um, an off-season thing called Secret Movie Club where we program premieres. Uh, it was at the time, it was 10 a.m. On a, on a Sunday morning once a month and we don't tell the members what they're going to see. We just say, come on down. And it's since moved to Tuesday nights at seven, which lets us play around with format a little bit more. But um, I was there uh, already. And I just said, you know, I have some thoughts. And Cameron said, I have other thoughts. And then eventually we <laughs> figured out how to put them all together. And they created a job for me. Uh, Cameron and, and Jeff McNaughton and the Lightbox were incredibly gracious, especially at a point in time where you know, my life was falling apart uh, professionally. The uh, Now magazine had basically just, they still owe people tens of thousands of dollars, which I think they'll never see. They owe me a few thousand, two or three for the last month that I worked there. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, uh, it was, it was the, the kindest thing anyone could have done for me, but it also turns out to be the best possible job because I am having a great time. Just came off of TIFF. Uh, we just finished, what, eight days ago, I guess, nine days ago, we finished up on Sunday, the 17th. And, and, ah, it was, the, it was the time of my life. It was absolutely wonderful. It was, it was busy and kinetic and wild, but you just throw yourself into it and, and it loves you right back. And, and the audiences were wonderful and the movies were fantastic. We had an incredible year. Kelly Butsalis and I, uh, my, my fellow Canadian programmer just, um, just rode this incredible wave of new talent and some old talent, some familiar, you know, veterans. Uh, and we just, we just gave it back to people and they, they had a wonderful time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm honestly, that was a really long answer, but no, that's a 35 year career. So I love those kind of long and informed and detailed answers because it's something that I always say, I, I should probably put it on a shirt, but one <laughs> of the, re one of the reasons I do like, I do like asking people the, these kind of questions is, no one's path to any career is the same you know like we all do we all enter into this field from various points of origins with various backgrounds and various um not necessarily ideologies but various perspectives you know and the way we see yeah. film is different and you know a lot of the way we see film is shaped by our own previous experiences and the way that you as a programmer would be looking at programming Canadian cinema in particular would be shaped by your previous experience 35 years is a lot of experience and coming from working talking having your background like being able to see how film as a physical media like was projected on screen like that, that's like what point that's like point zero 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 point one percent of the experience of most film goers across the globe so like that's an extremely unique perspective i like to think so um <laughs> i mean the, the thing that i love about about film as an art form um the only other one is television that, mm -hmm. that can do this uh and television doesn't work the same way because it's a, it's a more intimate experience because it's in your own home you know, 500 people sit in a dark room, they all occupy the same physical space, and they all see and hear the same thing. Film is fixed, right? Like you, you don't, it doesn't change from performance to performance, you'll get a restoration here and there. But the movie that plays at 130 is the same movie that plays at 445, five days later. And every single person interprets it slightly differently. There is there is no other experience where the medium doesn't change, and the message 
is fungible. The message is always open to interpretation. And that's the thing that I absolutely adore about movies, um, about cinema, because Roger Ebert has this famous line about the empathy machine where you are allowing yourself to be hypnotized by someone else's life, by someone else's message, by someone else's art. And that's it. That's it exactly. I mean, no one, I don't think anyone's ever said it better. I'm not sure anybody ever will. But it is that thing where we're all dreaming together and we're all kind of sharing the same dream, but what who we are impacts our experience of it. And yeah, I, I love that. I love being in an audience that is experiencing something great. Sometimes it's fun to be in an audience that's experienced something terrible, but I try to do that less often. Um, but yeah, there there are moments, there's this film that we premiered, I mean, we were the, the international, the Canadian premiere, it played in um, Venice at the Venice Days program called Humanist Vampire Seeking Consensual oh, Suicidal Person. I haven't seen it, but the title alone is just so funny to me. And the synopsis oh, it's, is like, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, it is, it is, it's adorable. Like for mm. a vampire movie that deals with themes of suicide, it is charming as hell. And it opens with this prologue, the seven minute scene where I saw 400 people in that audience each get the joke at a different point in time. Mm. And it's, it leads you by the hand. It's very, very careful and deliberate. Ariane Louise says is a brilliant first time filmmaker. She knows exactly how to play the room, but to watch it twice now, to watch it with an audience and hear them get like these little tiny, these little giggles and snorts that come out as people figure out what's going on in this scene and what the tone is. It's wonderful. And then by the end of it, everybody's laughing, which is what you want. And then it just carries right through to the end of the film. And it's, yeah, I'll connect you to the publicist. You should see it. It's really good. I should. Like, I'll appreciate that for sure. Because it was, I because one of my things for this festival, most of my coverage, not because of the strike, but also because my a lot of my, from my personal um, just personal preferences. I love mm-hmm. watching a lot of international films and I've been watching more like Canadian films. Like this time I think was the first time I got to see an equal amount, I think an equal amount of Canadian films and international films. Like one of my favorite films for the festival that I saw, well, no, I should be wrong. Two, two of my favorite films that I've seen for the festival is Brew, um, which oh, is yeah. a film from Montreal, but and also Days of Happiness. And I love those two films and they're so beautifully made and they're they're so very different in like, in like, in different ways but i love it because it's like you can have two people from the same city directing stories about montreal culture and history and all of this kind of stuff and you get these two vastly different perspectives you know and and display of like montreal and canadian society and community so um so I will, we'll definitely be able to talk about the films but um before we get into that like um you had mentioned when you saw when you were going to your uncle your great uncle's um theater you talked about the dying it was at the Dimes, right? You said it Oh, it's a roll dimes. of nickels. Yeah, nickels. no, dimes are too small. That's the whole thing. I'm West Indian. We don't say, even up to this day, I've been living in Canada for like, what, 14, 15 years. I still can't get my, a grasp on nickels and dimes. I'm like, what is the difference? But like- Five like, cents. Five cents what? is the difference. Right. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a story. Um, it's a story that's going away now because there are no- like every even 35 millimeters projected on a platter but in the olden days and fight club has a whole famous scene about this with the cigarette burns and switching yeah, yeah. between one projector to the other so the cigarette burn is really helpful it's the signal that says you have you know i think it's 10 seconds before the changeover and then there's another one at the changeover which is when 
the projectionist switches, the closes one projector and turns on the other, and and hopefully the audience won't know anything's happened. Uh, we have the you know, persistence of vision and a continuous flow of, of film, but the cigarette burns only work if you're looking at the screen. So if you have seen a movie or if you've been playing a movie for a week or two, you're not watching it anymore. The, for the most part, projectionists would like my grandfather would be looking at the racing form or listening to a ball game, almost guaranteed that that's what he'd be doing. And so sometimes you get distracted and sometimes you fall asleep because it's a long job. And the trick with the, the roll of nickels, dimes are too small, quarters are too heavy. So when you're rewinding the, the film, reel after screening it you they have to wind it back so the reel is ready to go again otherwise it'll play upside down and backwards and nobody wants that mm -hmm. so um if you can imagine a, a those big old like classic movie style reels of silver 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 platters with holes in them to so yeah. you can see where the film is so the innermost reel next mm -hmm. to the notch where you would attach it to the projector you would slide in a roll forgive the visual metaphor you would slide a roll of nickels because oh, they were yeah. thick dimes would fall right out nickels are big so you slide a roll of nickels in there and then you wind the film over it so it, the tension holds it in place so it looks like a little bulge yeah. but then as it's playing out the tension slackens as the film moves from one project one reel to the other and by the time it falls out you know oh i got 30 seconds and then you get up you it, the, the noise would be loud enough that it would wake you up oh, and the other thing the thickness of the nickel as a coin in canada anyway i'm not sure they're the same thickness in the us but in canada nickels are thicker than quarters or dimes which means the roll holds together quarters would smash and scatter everywhere and then you get distracted trying to pick them up he had this whole logic behind it and then it turns out i thought it was my grandfather being a genius and it turns out everybody knows the story who ever There's worked in a projection booth yeah <laughs> but i was a kid and it's just like he was the only authority i had and it's like this is kind of amazing and so now when i meet someone who's actually handled film or worked in a booth it's like do you use the nickel trick I'm like everybody knows it and it's it's great um but it's part of this language that simply isn't there anymore mm -hmm. and um and is uh I, I you know i feel like we've all kind of lost something film has progressed technologically i think the culture of it has changed and i think a lot of it has to do with that lack of um physical media and this is something they talk about a lot like you were talking about like the big um silver reels that they had in the th in the back in the projection rooms and now a lot of it is digital so like it's computers and like it's not the same thing before it would have been like this and whatever and now it's like probably the usb ports or whatever to watch a, a digital film but it's the same thing for us outside the projection we had vhs tapes you know we had D and then it was dvds oh yeah you know? and and then it was blu-ray and then now most of us we can't even go to a video store to the physical oh you have free yeah, like, it's coming out next week. That's the other ooh. thing I do, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, uh, and, and and so like now, my sister and I, we have we still have a few VHS tapes, and we have a VHS player. My, and my, my sister God. and I, we're not going to sell it, or we're not going to do anything with it because like we love that whole idea of putting tapes into the VHS player and playing it. Though I have like a lot of, um, I keep the DVDs that I get for the for your consideration for um, mm -hmm. for our seasons. I not throw mine away. I keep mine because I'm like. This is my this is my way of stockpiling and archiving film as a digital media because so much of it is not as a, as a physical media. It's a physical so object, yeah, digital, yeah, right. And like, and now we, when we have because of streaming, we're hearing about streaming platforms deleting 
films and shows off of their platforms and then they're gone forever. And I'm like, for a lot of the young people, they're not going to understand the importance of physical because like, even for, for music, everything is on is streaming, you know, everything's on their phone. It's like not having like a DVD or VHR or a, or a tape, you know, or a, that anything. And I'm like, there's so much, I think there's so much history in being able to hold a film in your hand and be able to say, I have a physical manifestation of all of the hundreds of hours of work that went into making this product. And like, no, we don't have it. Oh, absolutely. I, I wrote a, I wrote about this. This The other thing I do is a, is a uh, newsletter called shiny things, Mm. um, which is just about discs, uh, physical 4k Blu-ray, sometimes DVD, the occasional streaming project. But for the most part, I really want to write about the stuff that is harder to write about just because there's no market for it anymore. I mean, it's starting to come back now. People are beginning to understand that the value of, of a physical disc as opposed to a streamer. But, you know, for so long, um, one of the one of the dumber directives that now was that if something didn't have the word Netflix in it, it tracked more uh, poorly on, on SEO. So search engine optimization was all somebody sold our, our editor on that or our, our managing editor on that and she just got fully behind it so if it didn't have any like how is it on netflix so i'm not interested and it's just like yeah. well but that's not really we're writing about art and not everyone has netflix and dvd rentals and blu-ray rentals are still like five bucks and people can afford that and maybe can't afford a, a year subscription to a streamer uh, and also, there's more stuff out. There's just more stuff in the world on physical media. And um, yeah, I, I, I also have, I don't have as many VHS tapes, but I still have about 200 laser discs that have things on them that were never replicated because I'm very old. Uh, and I was I was writing about the Criterion Collection in the 80s when it was only laser discs, when they were inventing the special features that we take for granted now, commentary tracks, widescreen presentations, all that stuff. I miss those. I miss They're the still batteries. around. I um I just have here. I have in my hand because uh, I'm writing about them this week. These are uh, from uh, Criterion La September Collection. Yeah, La Bamba just came out. There's I think there's a 4K version. This is the Blu-ray, but this this Orson Welles The Trial is a 4K disc. And even if you stream them on the Criterion Channel, I think they're capped at 1080. But even if the Criterion Channel goes to 4K someday, the Blu-rays and the the 4K discs will still have a higher bit rate and more consistent delivery. The sound will not drop in and out the, you know, buffer. Um, it's just a better way to experience film. Um, HDR is richer. The, the 4K discs, I mean, 4K streams aren't bad. We're at a place now where I have a pretty good projector and a, and an Apple TV and I can watch a 4K movie on Netflix and it looks pretty good, Yeah, but my Blu-ray, the awards Blu-ray of, of Glass Onion, um, looks better because it's got a consistent bit rate and a higher bit rate. So I'm not watching an algorithm figure out what it can deliver over the pipe that's available. I'm watching the full uncompressed, well, as uncompressed as possible, but also the uncompressed audio and just I'm getting the movie as it was intended to be seen and which no one else is because there is no Blu-ray release of Glass Onion. Criterion will hopefully put one out because they do have a distribution line with Netflix, but you know, one out of every 50 Netflix movies will get released on Blu-ray or DVD because that's where the the deals are. Sony put out the Mitchells versus the Machines. Criterion releases, The Irishman, and The Velvet Underground, which is an Apple TV movie. But but for the most part, these things are not available 
uh, sorry, loose contact lens. Uh, they are not available to anyone who doesn't have the streaming program, the, the streaming service, which is the point, right? The, the exclusivity is the selling point. Yeah. But you're also guaranteeing obsolescence or, or the possibility of extinction. Uh, as you were mentioning with Disney Plus and HBO Max pulling entire shows and disappearing movies for a tax break, um, that's not good. That's like, that's, that's actually bad. And that teaches, uh, one of the things I heard over the last few months is that it actually has taught production companies not to trust those services anymore because they like residuals. They like the idea of a show being available or a, t or a movie being in circulation in perpetuity. And if Warner Brothers or Disney or, um, there's one other that's, oh, Paramount, which took Star Trek Prodigy off and a couple of other things. Uh, if those are disappeared, then they're just saying they can't trust, the producers can't trust the revenue streams to exist. And so they'll look for places that don't do this. They'll look for um, partnerships with, uh, with streamers who promise not to delete things. And it's just poisoning the well for an entire side of, of the industry that doesn't want anything to do with uh, a company that can't be trusted to, to keep the thing alive. Yeah, it's changing the industry. Like I'll be, and this is something that I, I'm very open about because I've written about it about um the impermanence of digital as well as the lack of access from my perspective as a film critic and a journalist. Because like people would think, oh, like if you have digital, which is like for us, we get like the links and all this stuff. Sure. Oh, it should make covering film easier. I'm like, actually, it does not because people would be like, oh, well, we don't, we have limited number of links. You know, I get that, like, especially for film festivals like South by Southwest and Sundance, like during the pandemic, it was easier because everyone was isolated. Everyone was home. So they had to make these things available, even for filmmakers in other countries and for the juries, you know, they had to make these links available. But once they started going back out there, we started getting the messages. Oh, we have a limited number of links. Oh, sorry. We don't have any more links to share. And I'm like, I can't fly to Austin. You know, I can't fly to Utah. I was able to cover Sundance in 2020 in person because I was able to raise funds. But I'm like, I'm a freelancer. Like it's so much oh, hard yeah. as it's so much hard as a freelancer not to make money as a film critic and a journalist. Oh. So I can't afford to cover like things in person unless I get sponsored. And they'll be like, basically, well, excuse my language, you're shit out of luck. You know, if you can't get there, oh well. But I'm like, but that then also like as we were saying in the beginning prevents people like me and like others who have different perspectives to cover a film from a very from a different perspective you know like as you said like you have a theater 500 seats everyone watching the exact same thing but everyone getting something different out of the film and the story and that's what i see film criticism as i see film criticism as a way to get perspective all of these different perspectives out to to not only to other audience members who would perhaps read the interview or read the review or, you know, even watch it. But for the people who make the films, I see a lot of my work is being, is communicating to filmmakers, you know, communicating to the industry as well, because I'm like, I, like I was sure with the filmmaker, I'm like, this is my perspective on your film. And that helps them to see their own work from a different perspective. And mm -hmm. that's necessary, but the studios and even like the publicists, they don't see that. So like, they don't see the, the benefits of making film more accessible. Film is becoming very inaccessible now, which is something I thought I would have never been able to say, like even five years ago, you know? Yeah, and it's incredibly counterintuitive too, because as you say, like, streaming is everywhere. And we did see this explosion of 
acceptance, like the infrastructure, the technology, it's all there. We can, we can distribute movies to people all over the world at very minimal cost. Uh, and some, some filmmakers are embracing the possibilities, others are not, but studios have been pretty slow to really understand that. And, and the other problem is that, yeah, the, even just the withholding of links for reviewers, it's preposterous. There's no reason not to, to share the product with people you, especially if you trust these reviewers and they have, they're established. Um, you know, there was the fear of piracy in the olden days, but now every, every streaming app is incredibly secure. Things don't get out. Things are pretty safe, uh, as I understand it. And, it is it like it costs you nothing to let somebody review your film. Uh, the the downside, of course, is that someone may write a negative review, but mm-hmm. there will always be negative reviews. There like there will always like it's a spectrum. People, uh, there's you know, I hate Rotten Tomatoes because it the devalues knowledge and reduces mm-hmm. everything to a thumbs up or a thumbs down, yeah. um, which I know. Uh, Ebert had a, a problem with as things went forward, because if you see the thumb up or thumb down, you stop reading the words and the words are where you understand the nuance and why. Exactly. Why but, does this person give it a thumbs down or why to give it a thumbs up? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I understand Siskel was all for it, but whatever. But um, <laughs> what you end up with is the, the breadth of experience of a critic that's reduced to one tiny little blip in an aggregator site where other people are maybe not arguing in good faith, right? Like you have the audience score and just look at what happens with a female-led superhero movie or anything that stars anyone who doesn't look like Chris Evans. Um, Nothing against Chris Evans. He's very good at what he does, but there are a lot of people who don't look like Chris Evans and those people get pilloried for existing by a certain demographic who would rather things, you know, stay a certain way. And it doesn't, it doesn't do anyone any favors to pretend that those people's opinions are genuine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, the shitposting that goes on around anything that is halfway, um, unpalatable to the mass audience or to a perceived mass audience. Uh, and that stuff, is why we need reviews from people who can actually think about what they're writing and, and who actually do engage with the material honestly and, and bring their own perspective to it, but but are genuine in their response. Because the only thing, the only responsibility a critic has is to themselves, mm-hmm. as to write fairly, and the audience will either follow or they won't. You know, I've, I've, I used to get angry faxes from people because, uh, again, I'm old. And I once suggested that um, maybe the, the Lord of the Rings movies could have gotten away with two four-hour films. And I got furious letters to the editor about how I don't know what I'm talking about. There were three books. There should be three movies. And the whole point of the thing was like, yeah, but, you know, it's movies. They're different. You could do something differently. And three movies, nine hours and 20 minutes is a lot. And then the director's cuts comes along. They're longer. And I know there are people who love that. But it is possible to discuss that material and whether the film and i love peter jackson i i know him a tiny bit from the olden days when he was making these these spectacularly silly horror movies that he brought to tiff which is where i first encountered his stuff um and i know his heart is in being silly and i think that the let the heaviness of some of the lord of the rings stuff is where he's least comfortable because he loves the material but he wants to show the life of it he wants to show these guys being you know 
convivial and having friendships rather than standing around waiting for a ne the next battle to start. And so you can feel the conflict. And I simply suggested that maybe to his, you know, like the original plan was to do two movies and maybe that wasn't the worst idea. And then just, again, people crying for my head and they're children. So it doesn't, you know, I don't take any of this seriously. Yeah. But it was always there. Like it's always been part of it. I, I love Star Trek on a deeper level than you ever will. Therefore, you have no right to make have this opinion about Star Trek Six being kind of flabby. It's like whatever. But now it's now it's become toxic. Very much. Now it's been taken over by uh, people who are so desperate to have any personality or identity that they align themselves with people who scream all the time and it's exhausting and the only thing you can do is laugh at them and the way you counter that is by having people cover the material genuinely honestly and so i think yeah i think tiff uh tiff Diz, i think we still have it i'm not sure i'm not part of that side of it but there was a program before the pandemic to bring out people underrepresented critics and and people from marginalized groups and identities to encourage and enhance coverage yeah that's how I, I started covering TIFF. I got when I, I my first year was in 2017, and it was cover. I was kind of like an assistant um, <clears throat> to an EIC, so I was and I did a few interviews in during then. But then in 2018 is when they did the inclusion in the first inclusion. That's initiative. what it was called, the inclusion initiative. That's how I started getting access to to cover for TIFF. So it was I got it for 2018, and then I got it for 2019, and then well, COVID. Sure. But um, but that's how I got it, and because I got that access from tiff that and it because i had like a whole ton of interviews and stuff before but because i had the i had the, i was able to say i covered tiff you know to, like tiff accredited journalist and um, film critic that really did help boost my profile and like when i would pitch editors or even like publicists for interviews they would be like and, I, and i'm able to send a link i'll be like that gave me like a lot of credibility oh absolutely in the yeah industry and like i'm always thankful for tiff for that and and like they do do a lot of work with helping like marginalized film critics and stuff about myself which is also where a lot of the access ties in because being able to attend a film festival like to, even in my own backyard because i live here in toronto i live in scarborough and like toronto is extremely expensive as you know like just oh, yeah. just, just being able to go to tiff is just getting the ttc and just having to buy food is expensive you yeah. know but i i don't have to worry about finding travel fear and whatever because it's here but like i'm still i still have that access you know one thing i love about tiff is is very i think it's like tiff is the one festival where it's so easy for me to get um screening links like if i'm not able to attend a film screening in person i'm i'm able to at least request a link from a publicist and get it so like that's that that you have that access mm -hmm. at the festival as well in two app in two areas you know being able to attend the screenings in person and being able to get um, links, but also being able to interview creatives and the actors and everyone who attends the festivals. Like, I'm here speaking to you, and that's access for me. Well, but I would have said yes no matter what, because I like talking <laughs> to people. Uh, but yeah, no, accreditation and uh, brings legitimacy, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that, that will get you to the next festival, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. I mean, that's how we all started. But it is, it is absolutely true that there have been barriers to entry in the past, and hopefully we're getting further along, further away from that. Um, and yeah, now that it is possible to, to let people watch movies in advance, I mean, it was always possible.
impossible to let people watch movies in advance of the festival critics. When I was with the star, I was covering Midnight Madness most years in the 90s because I was I was the guy who liked doing that and I was perfectly happy to. But it also involved going to the Cinematheque offices and taking home VHS tapes to watch overnight and then bringing them back and getting another one and, and screener after screener after screener. Uh, then it was DVDs for years and that was great and very helpful. And now it's links sometimes, but I mean, for, for people who are still covering it, I, I we have this thing called Film Freeway where we can, for programmers, it's invaluable. Everybody submits along the same platform and it's all, it's all unified so we don't juggle that level of screeners and we still do programming screenings in the building in in a movie screening room like from dcps but um yeah uh the access and availability of digital files has absolutely changed the way everybody works and the idea that you can publicists can hoard these things and like we don't have enough links it's a digital file you can make more links it's not hard just yeah. gotta copy and paste it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are <laughs> there are those platforms that have bespoke things that are tied to your email address. But then again, you just add another email address. It's not hard. And when people say they've run out of their allotment, I always have a little trouble believing them in the in the day. Yeah, I'm always like, why do you even have an allotment for a film festival? Anyway, you know. So it's like, yeah, but but now we're we're talking. And you meant I, I we're gonna talk about the festival this year's festival for sure. 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 But you mentioned Rotten Tomatoes, and I do want to talk about that because. For me, another thing that added legitimacy to my work um, is being Rotten Tomatoes approved. You know, I was an individually approved critic because I had a play um, a few years before and then I didn't get it because I didn't have any enough bylines. And I'm like, guess what? I can't get enough bylines if I don't have the whole tomato meter approved thing behind my name. You know, editors would be like, oh, you know, so legitimate. I'm unless they'd be like, are you Rotten Tomatoes approved? I'm like, no. Ah, well, you know, pass on on your pitch. And once I got it, but the thing with like, as you said, like the thing with tomatoes, like they do the whole thumbs up, thumbs down, or is it is if a film is rotten, fresh and rotten, fresh, yeah, but still, it's like you have that rating, but then as you mentioned, like people just go on this that little symbol of whether to watch a film or not, and I'm like, but are you even reading my review? Something that I took so much time to craft and you know think about and put in, and it's just like no, you know, like and it's and it happens with publicists all the time, even with other people that would come on my, my social media and be like, are you tomato meter approved? I'm like, yeah, it's right there in my profile. And I'll send them links. But I'm like, but are you actually reading the work? You know, they just want to make sure that I have that symbol of legitimacy. I'm like, but are you interested in the work? Or is that just that little symbol you care about? And it's just like, and like you're talking about like the studios, they look for that, you know, they determine if are we going to do another a sequel um, based on how many people uh, how much unless um, Rotten Tomatoes approve rating? It's kind of like me being tomato meter approved can say it's kind of arbitrary at the end of the day because I'm like, hey, are you actually reading the work? Yeah, well, they care about it because your opinion will affect the <laughs> film's standing, right? Like they'll they're much more interested in appealing to critics who are tomato meter approved because that will actually have a tangible benefit to them if they like the yeah. film. And also sometimes that I've been, I was told back in the olden days when I was writing reviews, it's like, well, your negative review will actually, we know you're not gonna like this. So maybe there's somebody else who can watch this movie. I, a couple of times people said that and they were always American personal publicists who are the worst. And it's like, really, come on, man. Like I'm, I'm, I'm the, uh, you know, I was a senior film writer. I wanted to review something. I'm going to review it. And if you don't want me to review it, it doesn't get reviewed. And maybe that helps them too, because if they know I'm not going to like it and we don't cover it, then there's no damage. But also 
some people read critics to see what they don't like. A number of people over the years have said, oh, I totally disagree with you, but if you hate something, I know I'm going to like it. And that's fine. That's absolutely, it's weird, but it's absolutely fine. Uh, means they're reading the writing mm-hmm. and, and figuring out if, you know, this is the sort of thing that they might like. Um, Roger had this story, uh, he used to tell it all the time, it's in at least two of his books, about being like at work at the Chicago Sun-Times at his desk and the phone rang and it was some couple coming in. They said, hey, we're going to be in, we're going to coming into the loop. And we were wondering, you know, like, what, what do you think we should go see? If we go see a movie tonight, what would you recommend? And he said, oh, Cries and Whispers. Uh, Ingmar Bergman, three sisters um, getting together to care for their dying mother. I think it's the best film of the year. And there was a pause and the person on the phone said, oh, I don't know. That doesn't sound like something we would like. And fine. You know, my standard line is, I was a movie critic for 35 years. I could not get people not to see Transformers movies. Um, But not everything is for critics. Not everything is for audiences, like mass audiences. Sometimes there's a happy medium. Um, But for the most part, you can, yeah, you can only be honest about how you feel about something. You can only, I said it before, your only duty is to yourself as a writer. But more to the point, you can you can figure out how to use critics and use them for your own, uh, what's the what's the right word, preferences, yeah. or for your own information. We are ultimately a consumer advisory mm-hmm. uh, as critics. And one of the things I do with Shiny Things is I really try to write only about movies that I like because I have the freedom to do that. It's my newsletter. I'm not accountable to anybody other than myself and my readers. And if they don't like it, they can unsubscribe and I'm gonna keep writing about it because I missed writing. Uh, once I joined TIFF, I just didn't do as much or any writing. And uh, and it's fun. It's fun to be able to write about whatever Criterion is putting out or the 4K edition of Natural Born Killers, which is a film I hadn't thought about in 25 years. But Shout Factory just reissued it, and here's a chance to think about it again. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. But I'm also ultimately calendar-driven, so you're, you're sort of covering whatever gets thrown at you that week. So you're not. there's not that much... I mean, I can only write about the things I want to write about, but I still have to have a hook for my own brain to make it feel journalistic. But but it's, again, it's just, it's just there for consideration. If you don't like the movie, you don't have to, I'm not ordering you to buy anything. I'm not obligating you. I'm not obliging anyone to do anything other than read the words. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like I, before, early up in my career, I was like, I have to write about all of these things because I'm trying to get the amount of bylines, you know, like if I have all of these amount of articles, people are th- going to think I'm more legitimate. But now I'm at a point in my in my career, like personally and professionally, where I'm like, if I'm going to do a review, it has to be about a film that I think I have something to say about, you know. And even and sometimes even if I don't like a film, I'll write about it because I'm like, okay, let me just start my thoughts out about it. I'm like, do I generally dislike or is it just very specific things that I don't like? And then I'll I'll write about that. Like I wrote about um Avatar with the water. Like I don't. Um, but, I, but as I was crafting my review, I took it as a challenge to, like, okay, Carolyn, be as perfectly objective as possible. And while I'm writing this review, I'm like, okay, you know what? There are things about this film that I like, that I did like, you know? And, like, it's not all bad and all that kind of stuff. So I, <clears throat> so when I write a review now, it's, I challenge myself to write films. And, like, suddenly because of my cognitive impairment, I can't write. So what I'll do is I'll try to see if I can interview the filmmakers and use that as a way to, like, sort my thoughts, thoughts out and, like, figure out what they were trying to say with the films and all of that. And yeah, so that's kind of like my personal philosophy is very similar to yours. Like I'm going to write it or I'm going to do an interview. And like, if people don't like it, that's okay. That's their prerogative. You know, that's their opinion. I'm going to write it. And 
I'd be like, at least I'm like, if it, you at least read it to know that you didn't like what I wrote. So, you know, yeah, yeah. So, so that's my idea. Um, and now talking about Tiff, like as a programmer, you now also have to be objective in programming films. You know, you have to make sure that when you're programming a film, like it has to be something that you like, but even if it's not necessarily something that you don't like, you have to be like, you know what? Can the audience get something out of this? You know, like, can the festival yeah. get something out of showing this film? That's fair. I, I don't think there is any such thing as objectivity in art, right? I mean, you're you're curating, you're designing a program that people will hopefully respond to, and yeah, there are there are films that are more uh, obviously mass appealing than others. Like Vampire Humanist is one where, or Humanist Vampire, the French title is Vampire Humanist. Um, uh, there are films like Days of Happiness, which is. Like it's it's a psychodrama, but it's a mass market crowd movie about a woman and her dad, right? That you can you can you can see your way into it, and then there are other films that are a little more blunt objecty and and less accessible, but they're still really great audience experiences. Like uh, Denis Cote's Mademoiselle Canopsia, which is effectively just the actress Larissa Corvo wandering around an abandoned hospital for eighty minutes. <laughs> Um, we put it in wavelengths, we put it in the proper context, and people loved it, which was so much fun. Um, the trick is to find something that you believe in and that you can get behind, and if you have to compromise on one aspect of it, you make sure there's another aspect of it that will appeal to someone else or, or the audience. And, and I think Kelly and I ran each other's movies by each other. We would, we, neither of us was willing to sign off on something unless we both liked it and would get behind it because inevitably there'll be crossovers where she had to introduce or do a q a for one of my films and, and i had to jump in for one of hers and that was all that's actually kind of fun because you're just jumping into something that's really fresh and you haven't been thinking about for six months it's like oh i have to do this now okay cool um but the the trick is i think as a programmer you just have to imagine it in front of 400 people which is again something that you don't do as a critic. You either had that experience when you saw it, but you saw the finished film. You saw the film delivered uh, to an audience that you are part of. This is coming at it from the other direction where you have to watch a film that may not be finished, uh, that, that might be delivered to you in some, you know, like 80% complete stage or with one visual effect that isn't there that's going to bring the whole movie together or without the color correction or with some rough sound. And you have to imagine how it will work in a theater. And whether, again, with Humanist Vampire, that prologue was all I needed. I could have turned it off after five minutes and said, yeah, okay, we're taking this. This is going to work. But you watch it all the way through to make sure. But sometimes it's really obvious. And sometimes it does require a little bit of a leap of faith or at least a leap of imagination thinking, well, um, yeah, I think this will play. I think this will land with an audience. I don't know. Um, then you have this amazing roll of the dice where either they're going to like it a little or like it a lot. And it always paid out this year. They, they, every, even the films I was a little bit worried might not find their people, they landed with the right audience. And it was, mm. yeah, it was wonderful. It's, it's honestly, um, it's the most thrilling thing to be on the stage with a filmmaker for the first time their movie gets a standing ovation, the first mm. time they know it worked. Uh, because until you put it in front of an audience, you can't be sure. Nobody knows, right? Like nobody knows exactly <clears throat> What the mood in the room will be if the projector you know, like if the light is too low if the light is too high oh all these variables and then it isn't until the film ends and the audience responds that you really know and um it's wonderful um 
I know I've told this story a bunch of times in the last two weeks. Danny Boyle uh, told me to drop a name. Uh, I interviewed a lot of famous people. So in 2010, we put him on the cover for 127 hours, and we that film premiered at TIFF, or Telluride, I guess, but it, it played Toronto. So he and I um, had lunch. Because we, I mean, I'd interviewed him a number of times and we knew it was going to be a long interview. So let's just say, just go eat lunch. So we were in the restaurant at the Sutton place, I think, or the Four Seasons. And we had this really lovely conversation about, well, ultimately it was about Slumdog Millionaire because that was the film that had played mm-hmm. Tiff two years earlier. And this yeah. was his big return with this new film. And, you know, everybody was talking about Oscars because, of course, Slumdog Millionaire had won Best Picture and Best Director and some other stuff. And he was like, none of that is important. But he acknowledged that Slumdog Millionaire, like Tiff, in his opinion, and most people's, Tiff saved that film because it was abandoned by Warner Independent Pictures. They The the, the distributors just decided, you know what, we're not going to release this, which, again, here we are. It's Hello. happening all over again. So Warner Brothers produced it through their independent shingle because that was the window of time where everybody had one. There was Warner Independent and Focus Features, which is still around, and there was another one um, that uh, like Fox Searchlight had just recently been created, and, and, and all of these things. And he'd he'd put um, he'd made Twenty Eight Days Later and millions for Fox and Fox Searchlight, and Twenty Eight Days Later was successful enough that he could just call. I think it was Tom Charity, not Tom Charity, Tom, no, I can never remember this guy's name, but the then head of Searchlight and, and said, like, Warner Brothers just dumped this movie on me. Will you at least release it on DVD? And they said, sure. And you want to go to TIFF? We'll take it. To, we'll put it in TIFF. We know they love you. So, which is weird because I don't know that TIFF had ever played. Shallow Grave must have played here, but TIFF hadn't played a lot of his films. But Toronto loved Danny Boyle. Trainspotting, actually, I think if I remember this correctly, Trainspotting made more money in Canada than it made in the U.S. for whatever reason, just because it, it didn't fly. Miramax just, it was a whole NC-17 thing behind it. I can't remember. Um, I, may be, I may be making this up. I don't know anymore. <laughs> but for whatever reason, he loves Toronto. And so he came back and they brought Slumdog Millionaire here. And they were still planning on a DVD release in the spring and just let it play the festival circuit, let it roll. Maybe it would play Toronto and Sundance and just, you know, roll onto video after a few months. Um, And so after the first press screening, I was there for that, which was, which went off like a rock concert. They were like, you've been to press screenings. Sometimes at a comedy, people will go, that's funny. Like there's no engagement. There's no response. It's true. Slumdog Millionaire blew the roof off. The press screening blew the roof off the place. Roger Ebert was there. He wrote about it. It was massive and so tom what's his name calls danny boyle he says uh in the story danny boyle says and then like 10 minutes after that press screening i got a call saying hey so we're thinking about a theatrical release after all because it sounds like it's going to get really good reviews and then two days later was the premiere i think of slumdog millionaire and the public premiere and that blew the roof off and Tom, what's his name, calls and says, so we're thinking October. What do you think about October? How do you feel about October? And then it wins the People's Choice Award at the end of the festival. And Tom calls him back and says, so you like the 12th or the 19th? Like, which one's better for you? And they were so excited about it that it ended up getting a huge push from Searchlight. It became their Oscar candidate that year. And of course, it won, it won Oscars. And so Danny says to me, Danny says, Boyle says to me, <laughs> The thing about Toronto, it's the only film festival in the world where you give people the movie and they give it back to you. Mm. 
And I thought it was a metaphor until I was on stage this year. And it's like, oh no, holy shit, this is exactly what he was talking about. This is literally true. The room reflects the film back at the, at the filmmakers. And the Q&As are always interesting. People ask really smart questions. People are excited to be there. When something goes wrong, if the, you know, if the sound cuts out or the lights don't work properly, they're on your side. They absolutely want it to recover. And I, we had a couple of hairy moments where I could just tell the directors, don't worry, they're with you, they're with you. This is yeah. going to be fine. And it comes out the other side and nothing but love. It's, it's absolutely exhilarating. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of annoyed that it took me 55 years to figure out that this is what I love doing most in the world, because I would have said it was watching movies, and now it's actually being there with them. Yeah, yeah I, them. I think Toronto audiences, for, for TIFF anyway, are very responsive, especially with the audience. Because mm-hmm. I do go to, I haven't been, I wasn't able to do any press screenings this time. Because I was, luckily, I had a lot of interviews to do. So, like, I was very happy about that. But That's good. Um, but doing the, all the films that I saw, is, I only saw five films in cinema. Mm-hmm. And they were all, were they all Canadian films? Because I saw, um, I saw Days of Happiness in yeah. cinema. My audience loved Days of Happiness. Oh, which one um, were you at? I was at both of those. Were you at the one in the light box or the one in the IMAX room? At uh, Lightbox. Yeah, that was a good screening. Yeah, that was a good screening. They loved that. I saw Swan Song. Um, <sighs> I that I was at the Q, where you I was at the one when you did the Q and A afterwards. So that's why I was just I went I immediately went to the press office. I was like, can I have contact to interview him because I love like the way how you did the the Q and A for that, and oh, also I just you. love that film. And I was just like, oh, I got to talk to like to to like the to, to you. Did you program Swan Song? Was it Kelly? Because I know like. Oh, uh, no, that I, was one of mine. Uh, I know Chelsea her. a little bit and they reached out to me as soon as they knew that we were going to be ready mm-hmm. and said, we think we think we'll be done in time. Do you want to take a look at it? And it's like, this is the Karen Kane. Thing. Hell yes. I want to take a look at this. Um, was that were you at the Q&A with Karen or was it the second? I did. No, too. I was at the second one with the cinema. Oh, the, that was a great Q&A. Um, it was. Chelsea and Sean, the director and producer, were just exhausted. They'd been pushing the film all week. And so they said, can we take this one off and we'll and we'll do we'll give you a couple of other people. It's like, I want the crew. I want to talk to like this is a documentary that there are a lot of documentaries about performance, but as you know, like this one was they found ways to mic dancers, they found ways to shoot without, you know, bumping into people. They're running around the stage at a massive production. I I knew that was gonna be a fun conversation. And I'm so glad you were there for that because that was yeah. that was just so great. We had what, two so two DPs and three editors and good questions, right? Yeah, because it was like five. No, no, it was great questions. I love their answers too because the the thing about that about them, they were so very, I think, honest and open about that film, about the process of that film because they were like, you know, it was a dream to shoot. Like they were like, no, we lost like thirty. We lost like thirty pounds each filming this yeah. filming this thing. And One of the cinematographers got a concussion. Right, like I interviewed, um, Sh- I actually interviewed Sean and Chelsea yesterday, so like for the podcast and everything. Oh, yeah. And it was great to talk to them because this film, um, and this is one of the reasons I want to talk to you because this film is a, it's set in Toronto for one. Like I don't get to see many documentaries mm-hmm. or films set in Toronto where we know that it's Toronto because you know there's a lot of films that get filmed here, but it's not Toronto. It's like New York or some other place. Sure, yeah. But it was like it's it's a it's set in Toronto, but and it's about this huge institution this huge cultural institution that still i think has this that's still kind of like it's there but a lot of people don't really interact with it because like it's like because it's artistic and it's specifically about ballet and the opera and stuff and like i walk down that area all the time especially like during tips and as i get out 
at um, St. Andrew's Station or sometimes I get out Osgood, you know, and I walk past there all the time going to eat yeah, it. Yeah. And I see the posters. Like, I saw the poster for the, for the Swan Lake poster. And I'm like, I was watching the film in the theater. And I'm like, holy crap. I walked past this building and I saw this gigantic poster. And now I'm watching a film about everything that took place inside this building, right? So that's kind of like a surreal and a very... Um, a very unique um, opportunity, you know, we don't get to see inside these kind of like the hallowed halls of the National Ballet of Canada, you know, and like, we got to see how we got to know this woman, Karen Kane, who has such a, a big part of Canadian um, art and dance history and ballet history internationally, because she played one of the she's played like Swan Lake so many times, you know, and like we got to see her do this, this production where for the very first time in a, in a Swan Lake and a classical ballet production where the ballet dancers didn't have to wear tights, you know, ever. Yeah, and yeah. that happened in Canada. That happened in Toronto. And it was happening. And I was walking downtown and I had no idea, you know. So that's why I love this film. And I, I want to talk to you now about, as you talk about, like, um, Sean and Chelsea say, okay, now we have the film ready. So talk about watching this film from your perspective, not only as a fan, but as a film critic and a product and a, and the person who programmed this film. And, like, what did you think when you when you first saw it and you said, okay, you know what, we're definitely going to screen this. Mm. But then, like, what was your thoughts before and after the screenings? Because I think, like, seeing the audience reaction would have been something extremely special from anything you had when you first saw it. Well, honestly, the the big regret is that I wasn't at the gala, at the, premiere, the, the proper world premiere. Because when I programmed it, it was going to be, we programmed it as a, briefly as a documentary and then it was going to be a special presentation which is which is great because that puts it in front of a really big audience generally at the princess of wales although not every time sometimes it's in lightbox one like it, they're always in great venues yeah. uh where they're presented with you know pomp and circumstance where it, you know special presentations and galas are the two big programs that everybody's excited about and then it ended up being a gala because I'm not exactly sure when, but somebody figured out, oh yeah, that's right, Karen Kane is royalty. So we kind of get to do this. We get to, and, and it's true that a lot of our documentaries this year were about cultural figures, weirdly enough, Karen Kane and in Swan Song and Mr. Dress Up, like Ernie Coombs, who um, was basically Canada's Mr. Rogers, uh, which is the easiest way of explaining it to people who don't know who Mr. <laughs> Dress Up was. But, but ultimately when you watch the film, it's also about a man who had a different uh, a different way of being a children's entertainer and a different, yeah. just a slightly different responsibility. He and Fred Rogers knew each other and they came up from Pennsylvania together to shoot Rogers' first show here, Mr. Rogers at the CBC in the 60s, which nobody talks about, but was the way he figured out what Mr. Rogers' neighborhood would look like when he got back to the States. And he left and Ernie stayed and Ernie became Mr. Dress Up and spent 29 years being a children's celebrity. So, and he's he's gone, but Karen Kane is still around. And so, we have these weird celebrations, but they're also films about kindness and compassion and treating the next generation with the sense of responsibility that you want to leave things better than the way you found them. And the, the tights thing is exactly that. Uh, and it was that runner that it's introduced about midway through the film where she says, well, can't they just have their own legs? Which is so, yeah. so weird a question to have to push on. And you see the institution just say, oh, no, it's not done. They're, bir they're playing birds. They have to have bird legs. And, and Karen just casually pointing out, okay, but the bird legs are pink and the rest of their body isn't. So yeah. why is that a thing? And she just keeps asking the question, never forcing it. She's in charge. She could have mandated it. But instead, she just brings everybody around to it very, very slowly by constantly asking why. By why is it so important? Why is it necessary not to? Why can't we? And then ultimately, she makes it such a simple argument 
you know, it's who they are. Let them be themselves. And then you see it on the faces of the dancers, that moment where they come out and people of color are allowed to be entirely people of color rather than playing a role. There are black swans. There are swans of browner skin. There are swans of different complexions. And there are some white swans too. And it's all totally fine. And the audience doesn't care. That was the thing that's incredible. And, and we talked about that um, off stage. Like that was one of the conversations I had with with Chelsea and Sean. It's like we were hoping that somebody from the audience would say, oh, well, so they could have that perspective in the film and just give somebody, give the audience somebody to go, asshole. But nobody cared. Yeah. Nobody had a problem with it. And for a hundred years, it just didn't happen because nobody in a position of power cared to change it. And it is so exhilarating to watch that moment with an audience. And I wish I'd been there for the gala because it was in a really big room. Mm. Uh, the two screenings we had, also good rooms, no complaints. But I wish I'd seen that moment land the first time before anybody had ever heard about it, before anybody, because we knew, we all knew. It's, there's a thing at the end of, did you see the Mr. Dress Up documentary? Mm. No. Well, there's a, there's a thing at the very end where the puppeteer who played Casey and Finnegan, these beloved puppets, right. uh, performs them for the last time. And mm. it's the very end of the film. And uh, I watched it at home uh, on a screener because that's how we watch things in programming screenings. Uh, sometimes I watched it uh, on a like 120 inch screen I know in stereo surround all the all the all the bells and whistles properly and just reduced me to tears just uh-huh. cried like a baby so uh, the night of the first screening at the lightbox one I'm in the green room waiting to go on backstage and introduce the filmmakers and the the venue liaison was back there making sure the, the everybody's lined up properly and everything's good to go and it's the very last thing you see after all the credits there's a little goodbye from casey and finnegan it's just mm. casey telling you that finnegan and i are going to go for a walk now and that's oh. it and i turned to the to the vl and i said this is going to destroy people mm. and he said how come and i'm you know like i've seen the movie twice at this point and i'm completely prepared and and like composed and dead inside and all that stuff and i just said because on some level like judith is 94 years old on some level people know this is the last time they're going to see casey and finnegan and i lost it i just started crying and i had to go and and it ends and i'm still kind of pulling myself together and that's the lights come up i have to go outside and introduce the director and so i go out with the microphone and i am like visibly sobbing and the audience gets to their feet and they're applauding me for i don't know what i just came out to say (laughs) please welcome the director and i can't actually talk so the ovation buys me a few more seconds and this is this flood of emotion and they're feeding it they're all crying i'm crying we're all crying together and i i'm like please welcome rob mccallum (laughs) and he's he's at the door the door is open blocking their view they can't see him but i can and he's just like He's, he's not gonna, coming out. <laughs> he's gonna make me cry. Yeah. And then, and I motioned about, and he came out, and it was really, really wonderful, and he was great. And that moment, I'm pretty sure a similar moment happens with Swan Song in that that little moment where the, they do the little, the two dancers do the chest pump and fall down, mm-hmm. and it's just all you're seeing is what happens when artists listen yeah. and pay attention. And again, Karen Kane, she's a legend. She is Hollywood, Hollywood. She's Canada Royal. She's Canadian royalty. She's, she doesn't have to listen, but she chooses to. And 
that's what the movie is about. It's about the younger dancers who are much more open about their personal battles than Karen Kane was ever allowed to be in the 1970s. It's about her understanding that things can be easier on the next next generation and just doing this one small thing, which is a massive thing, but one tiny element of the production and making sure it gets done. Mm -hmm. And that's what leadership feels like now. That's what empathy feels like. And it's that was watching it at home. It's just like, oh, yeah, we have to put this in there. Not only is it a really good movie, but the message is is absolutely necessary. And and yeah, it's changed a couple of times. Uh, Chelsea and Sean sent me two, three different cuts over the months. We first saw it in, I want to say late June, early July. There was some question as to whether it'd be ready in time, and then it was, and so we got to watch it, and then I passed it along to Kelly and Tom Power, because he's uh, Powers, sorry, with Power, Tom Power, CBC, Tom Powers is our guy, uh, the documentary programmer, because even though I, as the Canadian programmers, we get to choose anything, anything that's made by a Canadian filmmaker or produced in Canada with Canadian money and a Canadian producer or some combination, it has to go through Kelly and me. Mm. We are, we are that, we are the gatekeepers really for lack of a better term but before it can make it into another festival program it comes through us and then we steer it and this was easy because it's a documentary so we sent it i sent it to kelly i sent it to tom it's like this is really really good and then it just built up momentum so we ended up going into special presentations and then it became a gallop but everybody responded to the same thing that i responded to which was it's it's an excellent example of what canada believes itself to be right like we're not but sometimes we can be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, there can be a good Karen, which is the one thing I've been <laughs> trying to use as, a, as just a lever into it for other people. It's like, well, she's not white knighting, but she is using, she's she's intensely aware of her status and position and she's using it for good. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Mr. Dressup was about before anybody had the language. I mean, Casey was played by um, this this puppeteer, Judith, whose last name escapes me, uh, as either a boy or girl. Casey is the first non-binary character in children's television, and it was in the 1970s, and nobody noticed. It was just deliberately designed, the puppet was deliberately designed to be read as a boy by boys and girl by girls. Casey is an androgynous name, and they never pushed anything about it, but it was always just there. So the audience could identify with it, and they didn't even know it was a queer statement or a political statement or anything about the gender spectrum. It was just a way to get kids feeling comfortable and making a space for them. And that sort of empathy and kindness and compassion extends outwards and radiates outwards through everything that Ernie Combs touched. And and you get to see generations of people who were influenced by him the same way you watch, you actually see it in real time in, in Swan Song of Karen Kane, just making everybody's lives a little more authentic by acknowledging them. And yeah, just saying, and like, why are we pretending? No, it's true, and and like because like one of the, I, I think one of the reasons that Swan Song is honestly one of my favorite films for the festival um, is because it's so authentic. You know, like Chelsea and Sean were very careful to make sure that they hi- highlight because what we're seeing is just a feature version of the four part series, and I'm really looking forward to this series. Is they're very careful to make sure that they showed the. Karen in particular in all of these various sides you know like yes people know her as like the prima ballerina people know her as the artistic director of the of the of the company but like she they also show like she's also kind of she's very witty but she's also very sarcastic and at times 
she does and says things that people could look at her sideways and say, you know, that wasn't very nice. You know, like one of the things where she yeah. talks about getting the swan from the fan. And I'm like, imagine the fan watching this and hearing that she didn't like this, the, the swan that she sculpted for them, you know, or that she didn't, she doesn't like the painting that Andy Warhol created for her. You know, I like, I like that she doesn't have that pretentious, uh, pretentiousness about her and that the film makes sure to show those moments, you know, instead of just showing all the glossy sides of her like they're like nah we're gonna show her saying she don't like this painting i have it i hung it on my wall but i don't like it you know and also in her and like her admitting about like she didn't really understand the, ram the ramifications of the whole tight situation mm -hmm. but then also getting us to see um like how these dancers struggle uh, mentally you know like today who is one of the black dancers she talked about the racism and feeling isolated and and not fitting in with the ballet community. And so does Shanae. I love, um, sh sh she's amazing. And like, I love that they were so carefully sharing her own struggles with mental health and like how being in that space also made her feel isolated and like not feeling like she's part of ballet. She's like, I love this thing, but I feel like it's destroying me at the same time. And so the film like encapsulates all of these things about not just ballet, but I think um, Canadian society because Canadian society, as you, as you mentioned, a lot of people have this, uh, a lot of people outside of Canada have this perception of Canada being the good version of America in the North. And they have to tell people, I'm like, as a black woman living in Canada, I can tell you no. Like, it is like, it's a very carefully constructed um, persona or facade that Canada has. And like, these different films that have been showing shows that it's not all this, but a lot of these things can be better or improved just with empathy like using rue as an example rue talked about the mm -hmm. vietnamese um refugees who came to montreal in the 1970s and like yes they did face racism and they faced it like ignorance but then they also met a community of people who took the time to get to know them and who took the time to show them empathy and understanding and met them where they were at you know and i think like as you were talking it kind of made me think like all the canadian films that i see i saw all the films that I've seen for the festival so far all have that theme of empathy, you know, of meeting people where they're at. Like, um, Days of Happiness is about that. Like, this is a young conductor, and she is she's struggling to figure out why isn't her work clicking? Why isn't she succeeding? Or why isn't she able to do what she wants to do as a conductor? Lo and behold, it's because of her relationship with her dad. And the empathy that she has to, sh that she receives is from herself, where she has to say, you know what? I have to be empathetic to myself. I have to be careful and kind to myself and put myself first, you know? And it's about her learning to meet herself where she was and like learning to understand that her expectations were too much of herself because of what was placed on her externally. So like all the films have these, these, these underlying themes. So like for you as a programmer, like it may not have happened intentionally this year, but like, do you, did you ever like had a moment where you thought, wait a minute, we had a theme and we didn't necessarily have a theme. Uh, it did emerge actually over the course of the, over the course of the cycle. I mean, we started programming in March and we had it all put together by the middle of July. We all, we, there was like one Deepa Mehta's film, I Am Sirat was added towards the end. It was a very late arrival just because we weren't sure we, we'd have it. Yeah. Um, and it, even that film is about uh, experiencing someone else's life like being being on board riding along with someone who is uh, a in this case a trans woman who has to code switch and go back into the closet to live as her dead self with her fundamentalist mother in delhi because her mother won't acknowledge her as a woman but it's all about 
Yeah, I guess if if there is a movement, it's about empathy. It's about understanding um, situations. A couple of our films are about how difficult it is to live in Toronto. Like, um, uh, I don't know who you are. M.H. Murray's movie mm-hmm. is about a bunch of stuff, but the like primarily it's about a, a, an artist who is sexually assaulted and has to spend a weekend running around Toronto trying to raise $900 that he doesn't have so he can get a course of HIV preventive medication in case he's been exposed. And it's about how hard it is to live in Toronto if you don't have money or status. It's about how hard it is to do a lot of things, but that's the underlying theme. And last year, uh, before I was on board as a programmer, VT90s filmed This Place. Um, Mm, I love that. I actually know VT. I interviewed her too, yeah. She's wonderful. She was on the Amplified Voices and and Canadian Film Jury this year because... I knew, well, she didn't have a movie in this year, so she could be, <laughs> she was, she was objective enough, mm-hmm. but also it's like, I knew she would be the best person, but then we, we built a pretty good jury, but 90 was one of the people I had in mind from the very beginning because yeah, she's incredible. And she absolutely has the energy to get through all of these films, but she also has the perspective that maybe certain other more storied jurors might not have, which is that she just made a movie with nothing uh, in a city that's very expensive and she knows exactly how much work goes into making a film when you don't have that level of support. But yeah, this place is also about how the city and the the kind of forced alienation of living in Toronto with no money uh, weighs on these two, on its two characters as much as any of their own issues does. And that's something, you know, TIFF is a very gaudy, splashy event and we're seeing like red carpets and jewels and stuff. But the smaller movies get the same platform if we're lucky mm-hmm. and they definitely get the same audience. And maybe it's worth it to acknowledge that not all art is uh, pretty, not all art is glossy. And certainly uh, the, the lineup we've had is, is much scrappier, I would say than it has been in years past, but also that's because Canada as a, as, as a cinematic hub is in a place where, you know, the tools are uh, digital cinema is digital cinema is incredibly easy. Now, there are people who have grown up with editing tools that I don't even understand that can that can intuit like cut like a DJ. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's uh, one of the movies I haven't mentioned yet, uh, The Queen of My Dreams, Fazio Mirza's film. That's another one I want to see. I haven't seen it. I actually met the the director and the the lead actress at the um, Real Asian Party. Oh, yeah. Because I, I also cover Real Asian, like covering Asian cinema is a, a big passion of mine. So I went there and I, I uh, so what I was talking to just happened to bumping her. And she was like, oh, I'm in Queen My Dreams. And she's like, this is our director. And I'm like, ooh. And because it was on my list, because usually at the beginning of every festival, I make a list of films that I want to see based on like, this synopsis and everything. And that was one of them. So I have like the contact there to like reach out to them because I was just like, oh, it's another Canadian film. It's about Pakistani and culture. Yeah. Stuff. So I'm like, yay. Yeah. But it's also the language of it is incredibly sophisticated. It shifts between 1969 and 1999 mm-hmm. uh, to tell the story of a mother and daughter at, at a point when they're the same age, you know, 30 years apart yeah. uh, and played by the same actor, which is amazing. Amrit is Amrit Kaur uh, from the Sex Lives of College Girls in HBO series. It's her first feature. She absolutely crushes it. She's incredible in both roles. And she's so good, in fact, that the version of the film I first saw was low res enough that I didn't realize it was the same person because I All couldn't right? quite. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you blow something up to a projector yeah. and it can get a little boxy, a little pixelated. And the resolution was probably 580 or 540 or something. And it, it just wasn't in HD. Mm. And so 
there's a shot later about it and, and I was watching and thinking oh my god the, these two actors must have worked together so like, I think this one's a little taller than the other one but they're, like, they're, they're getting the gestures right and everything this is really great they must have rehearsed for weeks and then of course it's the same person and I'm an idiot um, but it snaps into focus and there was one shot that was sharper than the other it was a close-up mm. in 19 of, of the mother of the younger mother in 1969 it's like that's the same lady and <laughs> Then I realized what I thought was a pretty good movie became a great movie because that's yeah. a brilliant device. Um, but yeah, uh, the the language of that film, there's this little rotation thing that screen does when it's flashing backwards and forward like somebody spinning a turntable at you. Oh, okay. okay. Um, but also the the cinematographer, um, like Fazia, figured out a way to explain it to their DP, uh, Matt Irwin, who shot I think the second season of Sorto, the CBC series. Mm. Uh, with Blau Big, and his eye is amazing. But what he does is he makes the 1969 series sequences look. He appropriates the texture and color scheme of Bollywood cinema. So pastel colors, bright, bright light, sunlight pushing into the frame, and all kinds of other little fun ticks that we internally just as associate with with yeah. Bollywood cinema of the 60s and 70s. And then the 1999 scenes are just shot a little flatter, a little dirtier, like a Miramax indie from that period. And it's just this casually um, elegant way of just going, this is where we are. Pay attention. Mm. And you pick it up very, very quickly, and it's really, really clever. And then it also just builds to this climax, which sort of merges all the all the textures in one shot that or two shots. That's oh, it's wonderful. But again, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, this is this is a brilliant new voice. This is some and and Foz is not a kid. They they made their short film that this is based on. The Queen of My Dreams was in 2012, I think, and they're mostly a writer. Um, and in fact, I've been on the picket lines for, for months. Uh, so I'm even happier to see that get resolved. But more and more, we became, it became really obvious that the films we were watching, these, especially the first features, are movies from people who have been thinking about this for a really long time. And part of that is the result of the Telephone Talent to Watch initiative, where, again, they're reaching out to underrepresented and marginalized voices and giving them the chance to direct a film rather than just write it or shoot it or co-star in it. And you're seeing people deliver first novels. Like, they, they're getting it all out just in case they don't get a second chance. And they will. They will all get a second chance because the stuff we've seen is brilliant. We've seen some stuff that's less brilliant. We didn't program those. We we had we actually had to leave out films for one reason or another. Sometimes it was a question of post-production. Sometimes it was there, like the filmmakers wanted to go somewhere else instead. And I could see a couple of movies that we couldn't get going to Sundance very easily. Good for them. I hope they and I hope they're successful because rising tides do lift all boats. Yeah. But what you see is the best possible assortment. We 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 were like overjoyed to have so many good films. And honestly. It's a great time for Canadian cinema. We were reaping the bounty. I didn't, like, people kept saying congratulations. Like, I didn't do anything. I just pointed at stuff. Uh, Kelly and I both were just, like, running out with a net, catching stuff that was falling because it was, like, it was raining good movies this year. And everybody said, you know, like, you have so much enthusiasm. It's like, I'm really happy to be showing these films. I didn't, you know, like, there's nothing in here that I'm ashamed of. There's, there's no there's no political pressure to take. Like, and And ultimately, that's been wonderful, too. The festival has been you know other people from other film festivals have told me stories of backstabbing and mm -hmm. and territory and turf wars we don't have that or at least if we do i haven't been part of it um people would say oh 
I saw this, you might want to take a look at it. Or, and I would say this doesn't work for us, but you might be able to put it in, you know, uh, what do we call it? Uh, the film circuit, which is the, right. the sub distribution thing that TIFF does where we put movies in movie theaters all around Canada in the off season, even if they didn't play the festival, there might be a home for something that doesn't quite fit. So that was something we brought up a lot. Uh, we're all working together and it's kind of wonderful. I feel like I've, I've been saying this a lot too, but if, I do feel like I've joined a cult where we can, we live off projector light and popcorn and applause, but it's a really nice cult and everybody's healthy. <laughs> I can, I can, I can agree with the popcorn. I love the popcorn. I love popcorn is my favorite food. Not even joking. Popcorn and pizza can be, I can sub yeah. off of those. Oh yeah. But I, but I do agree with you. I think this year. Um, from the festivals, all the festivals that I've done, this is probably my favorite year for TIFF oh, that's great. this year. And I think like this is probably the first time for any film festival that I've covered where all the films that I've been able to see so far, I've liked. <laughs> and doesn't I, always I, happen. I, which, which does not, as you said, which does not always happen. Like normally they'll be like, wondering, like you know, I don't feel this one, but this one I'm like, you know what? I love all of these films. Like, and like, they're also very different. And the, the some are by new new uh, filmmakers like um uh there's a Korean film called Memang by a new um he's done short films before but he, but this is his first feature called mm -hmm. um his name is um Kim Tae Young and like that film is so different and like but I love it I love that it's different I love how he structured it you know I love Rue like this was the first time I think I've seen anything by the filmmaker for Rue but like. His cinema, the cinematography in that film is like amazing. I love how they constructed that film and interconnect and like brought the past to the future um, to the present by the by the how they spliced the scenes together was like amazing. And like I just and, and then for me with sound design, I would think for me is Days of Happiness and Not a Word, which is a French um oh, German. Yes, I haven't seen that. It's so good. And that's another film about a female conductor, but I love the sound design in both Days of Happiness and um not a word. Like the sound designs is so good. Like and I just and I just love that. And like for, for me, Swan Song was like a pleasant surprise because not only did it put me into the world of the National Ballet, but also it's so unexpectedly funny. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I and I like, I wasn't expecting to laugh as much as I did in watching that film. Like my like, as you know, the audience was like laughing and like like things that characters would say or do, like the cinematographers, I think did such a fantastic job catching little moments between the dancers and catching things they would say or do. Like if they didn't catch, you would miss this whole moment of like levity or sarcasm or just like the girls would be like, what is happening? You know, like what's going on? Like all this confusion. And I love that it shows that even the dancers are like, what is happening? This is all chaos. You know, but it's like it had, but it all pays off in the end, which is like what a film festival is. Like a film festival is chaotic as heck, but then at the end oh, you're yeah. like, you know what? It was completely worth it. Like the chaos, it was it, in the midst of the storm. Nothing makes sense, but once you're out of it, you're like, you know what? I can see a beautiful pattern emerging. <laughs> yeah, I by the end of it, I, I was, you know, people are asking me how I was doing. I was like, well, my body is destroyed. I, <laughs> I am dying, but I feel fantastic. Like mm -hmm. I was, I my. Oh, yeah, I would have I was waking oh, I sound like such a nerd. I was waking up early because I was excited. I wasn't sleeping much, but I was waking up excited to go back in because mm. you just get to keep doing it. You just yeah. get to keep running and then you crash hard. Um, last week is a, was an almost total write off, but that's OK. They're, that's built in, right? Like you're coming off this juggernaut that's been running for six months or eight months or whatever. And you just sort of sent flying back to bed, which honestly is not a, the worst place to end up. 
like post fest crash is real like it mm. was useless last week i was like oh i'm gonna do all this editing and all this stuff and then i got the cold and i was like you know what no <laughs> and he started to he started able to do my editing from the end of last week because i had a piece to write for a korean website and all of this i was like i do not have the energy but that's part of it you know like the f- covering of film festivals is a lot of fun, but there's a price to pay at the end of it, which is pure exhaustion. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say it's actually easier to work for the festival than to cover it. Mm, nobody, really? like nobody believes me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would when I was writing for now, when I when I was covering any film festival, you see every movie you can. Mm-hmm. We would file something like 60, 65 reviews over the course of you know, and you start in mid-August. My birthday is the middle of August, and it would be the time when I say goodbye to my family and my friends and just disappear into the festival because the press screenings would start and you just lose yourself in the cycle of the pre-interviews. And with now, too, we had to prep everything by Labor Day for our big TIFF issue. And so once the festival starts, you're just filing reviews for online or you're going to the interviews. And it's way, way harder to run and sit and run and sit and run and sit and then try to have a coaching conversation with an artist you've admired for 30 mm-hmm. years uh, and run and sit and run and then somehow at one in the morning type that up and put it on the internet. Uh, that was awful. And then you get up at eight, uh, you have to be at the next screening the first thing in the morning at eight o'clock, 8.30 in the morning for the first press screening and run and sit and run and sit and run and sit. When you're in it, when you're introducing and running Q and A's and hosting the occasional cocktail, that's not work. Like this part was the party. This part was just, you know, I was I was playing Frogger. I would be running from the Scotiabank to the Lightbox back and forth across mm-hmm. Adelaide over and over and over again. But you're always running into an adrenaline situation. You're always running into you're in front of an audience or you're having a conversation with somebody you really admire. But there's a level of professionalism where you get to just be equals for those five minutes and talk about like the project of Viggo Mortensen, making sure the projection was at 2.4 for the right lighting, for the foot candle number. I'm not even sure what it was, but he like 2.4 to 2.6, it's gotta be in there somewhere. Cause I got some stuff going on with the sunsets. And it's like, you do, I've seen your movie. You do have some stuff going on with the sunsets. Good for you, Viggo Mortensen. Good for you for caring. Um, Cause not everybody does. And you, but you get to see that you get to be part of this flow of art. Mm-hmm. And you can, you know, for all the noise about red carpets and which movie stars were here and which movie stars didn't come because of whatever reason, uh, or whatever other thing is happening outside, when you're in the building with the audience, once you're in the auditorium, they're there for the wall, they're there for the movie on the screen, and you just get to be part of that experience. And I, I could live on that. I get it. Like, I get why people program for multiple film festivals and just travel like nomads going from city to city, making movies happen for people because it is like the greatest feeling when it lands. And I got to have that at least once a day, every day for, from, I didn't do anything on the Sunday, except I was there for the awards when I got to watch people who I'd worked with and filmmakers that I'd helped a little bit just by bringing them on board when Prizes that could alter the course of their careers. Yeah. Meredith Hammer Brown winning the Fapresci Award for Seagrass, a film I haven't even mentioned now, but it's this, this tiny, delicate story about a Japanese Canadian woman whose mm-hmm. whose relationship to her heritage might be the biggest stumbling block in her marriage, but it also might be her husband. And it's one of those things where you just sit and watch and steep with this life for two hours, and it's it's great. It's a wonderful film. We did two Q and A's for that. And each, and, and each time Meredith would reveal a little bit more about herself. And then I would get to 
talk to her afterwards and we just you build these relationships with people and when you see the films embraced by an audience and then by uh, in this case by Fapresci, the international critics association it's it's exhilarating they didn't they didn't have to give the film to the local film like they didn't have to give the prize to the local movie the, right. the canadian film at a, at a canadian film festival it's vancouver but still um we don't do that. I'm a member of Fapresci. I've been on juries and you are discouraged from giving the award to the hometown picture because it looks like you're playing favorites. But oh, really? really, yeah. But they just, only once, I think, have I ever been able to do it. And it was for Joanna Hogg's first film, Unrelated, which in the rear view at the London Film Festival, yeah, she's a genius. It was her first film. It was brilliant. That's what we were there to do. Of course we gave it to it. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's not done because it's seen as uh the easy way out or a, a political gesture but really they picked it because it was their favorite film in the, in the entire discovery program and it's great and i'm so glad for meredith because it does mean that the path to her next film gets a little easier and then that means i get to see it right I, I, this is all ultimately self-serving like i said once you find out there's a way to see movies for free you never stop so i just want to i just want to keep seeing meredith's movies because she's doing great work so yeah, I'm going to I'm going to root for them. I'm going to help. But if that's what I do now, if that's my job instead of uh directing people to them once they're out, I can direct them people to the first screenings of them. That's even better. But and that's an important thing as a programmer that I don't think I even I ever thought of before where like yes, your your job as a programmer is to select films that will that the audience will like and that will kind of like boost i don't want to say boost the profile of the festival but enhance the the festival experience and the festival itself you know by saying we platform this award-rated film mm -hmm. but also your job as a as a programmer is to like offer support to these filmmakers especially for the young um young and emerging filmmakers you know for like those who have their first time features shown at the festival or even like those for like the short films and like the platform um in like the wavelength and the short film programs yep. like your job is like is to give them a boost because like that's telling them they're like oh wait that's, that's giving them validation as filmmakers they're like oh wait the programmer from tiff likes my film i want to platform it that gives them that validation you know that gives them that support like, even when you do the q a's because one thing that i that i think a lot of people don't realize is that q a's are an art and it's an art form you know it's like not easy doing q a's not doing it's not easy doing interviews and like one of the things about Q and A's at, at, at film festivals that I think is very important is to highlight the filmmaker in their own space, you know, in the auditorium. Because where else but film festivals do we get to see the filmmaker talk to the audience about their own film? You know, I, yeah, yeah. I, that's the only like the, like doing interviews is one thing, but like within the the, the space of the film festival itself, that's the only place where we get to interact with the filmmaker, you know, and see them talk about their story and see them talk about crafting their story, their, their films and all of that. And as a programmer, like that's your job to give them that space and the opportunity to say, here, here's your audience, talk to them. Yeah. I mean, we do at TIFF, we, we do try to bring in the artists year round. I mean, I kind of love it. I, I'm, I've always been a little tiny bit of a ham. That's why I have a podcast. Well, I mean, I started the podcast because we were doing fewer and fewer interviews at now, and I just wanted to keep talking to people about art because yeah. it's just the most interesting thing. It's the best part of the job is to talk to somebody who makes art about why and, and what, what other things they love and, and how it works to be an artist 
consuming art and, and, you know, whether it influences it. So my, my podcast is called Someone Else's Movie, and it's a show where writers, directors, actors, industry figures talk about a movie that they love, but that they have no professional connection to. Because I discovered years ago that when someone is talking about something they love, you like the talking points fall away, the posturing falls away, you get the real person. And mm -hmm. it's the best way to connect to another human being is to ask them what they love. And so I'm really comfortable doing that. And I'm a little, I'm just enough of a ham to enjoy doing it on stage with, you know, make people listen to me, but also to steer the focus towards, because it's one of the things that I started doing uh, this year, which I, I, I will probably keep doing because it's fun, is when you come out and they're applauding, it's like, I didn't do anything. You're not here to see me. Let's talk to the real people. And you bring out the director and everybody loves that. But it's true. They're not there to see me. I'm, I'm the, I facilitated the screening by programming the movie, but ultimately that's my job is finished by the time I, by the time I get back out on stage, they want to talk to the, the talent. And that's a lot of fun knowing that you're not the reason someone is there, but that you can be part of the experience and make it play for that person. That's, that's kind of fun too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, and I've been doing onstage Q and A's at TIFF, uh, secret movie club has an interview at the end of every screening with generally with a filmmaker, but sometimes with somebody who's commenting on the film that we've just seen. Uh, and so, you know, if you can do that at, at a, for a 10 a.m. screening, if you can find a way to be interesting at 11.45 in the morning, you're probably pretty good at this. <laughs> yeah, that's the reason why I do what I do, because I just love talking about movies. I love talking to people about movies and why they do, why they do. Um, so like, that's fun for me. Um, so we're going to wrap it up because we've been going for a while. This was so much fun. We're going wow, to have yeah. to do another podcast episode one day. Maybe I'd to love to. We should, you know what? We, the next episode, I want us to do another episode to talk uh, strictly about one of the films from the festival. Like your, you pick your favorite film, Ooh. and we'll talk about that one. Oh, and I don't know that I can do that. I'm supposed oh. to like, I'm supposed to be very vague about if I have a favorite or not. I, the, the way I, the way I would explain it when people ask me if this was my favorite film that I'd programmed, I would say something like, "Well, I mean, I guess there's probably three babies that I would favor, <laughs> and this is one of my babies." But that way, I could just be really vague about what the other two were. But uh, yeah, I have a favorite. So okay, so instead of a film that you program, we'll think we'll talk about one of your favorite films from a particular genre, and it doesn't have to be a TIFF film. It could be a film from the '80s, the '90s, or whatever, and talk about it because that's one of the something that I do where I talk. Um, I I talk about a, I pick a film. I usually do it for um dramas, Asian dramas mm -hmm. or films. We talk about a film and and like just like talk about it and like all the stuff related to it. So we'll do definitely have to um, link up again and and talk about that. And I, I did I know that. I would love to. Thank you. Yes, definitely. This consider this your invite. And I did know that um, Swan Song was screening on the 29th, but I didn't know it was going to be at the TIFF Light Boxes. Yeah, what? yeah. We're opening it for, oh. I think it's a week's run. The showtime's an announcement come out tomorrow, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes live on the 27th. But yeah, starting Friday, it'll be there for a few days at least, maybe two weeks. And then it shows up on CBC Gem later this fall but not in a film version it's a yeah. four-part miniseries which i am really looking forward to because they were talking about that at the q a too right it will be different structures and a focus on different characters and their entire people that we don't get to see entire people there are whole lives that we don't get to see in the movie that will be featured on the in the miniseries and i'm really looking forward to that yeah i'm very excited for the series too because i'm like Ooh, there's a couple of because <clears throat> I know there's like one of the girls from the beginning where she's like she's talking about the letter that Rob made and that scene made me I was laughing 
Because she's like, thank you so much for all the pain I put you through, girls. And you know, for changing the for changing choreography like a million times. But like, yeah, but I think like Chelsea um said like that dancer is one of the ones that gets profiled in the series. I'm very much looking forward to that. And I'm gonna publish my interview with them <clears throat> in time for that. So like the 29th today is about the 26th. So I'll be publishing that interview for the film's um screening for TIFF. So definitely. I might make it down to TIFF. I shall try. But I shall see. <laughs> yeah, if you can, we'd love to see you. Yay. Okay. All right. So um, thank you so much, um, Norm. Oh, my pleasure. I'm, I'm so glad we got to do this. This is fun. And, <laughs> and yeah, feel better. <laughs> thank you. So everyone, that was another episode of Caroline Talks. And this was one of my special episodes for the 2023 Toronto International Film Festival. I was joined by festival programmer Norm Wilner, former film critic and journalist. And I, I love being able to talk to him about his um, work as a film critic here in Canada in the past. And it, like, I didn't have no idea that he would reveal that his his great uncle used to run a uh, theater. But having that experience did definitely shape his perspective as a film critic, and it really gave him a lot of history and like a lot of knowledge about the film, the film industry itself, and and film itself. Like, I love the way he was rattling off like like stats and numbers about like the aspect ratios and like the you know the visual numbers and like all of that i love how he was just giving off those kind of numbers because at first i was like yeah i kind of get it <laughs> but thank you so much to norm for talking to me about that and about the about about programming um this year stiff like the films honestly this year i i i'm not even joking that like, no films that i've seen i didn't like i like all i loved all the films that i saw like each of them give me something different each of them hit me in my feels that had me in my emotions and um the Canadian films really surprised me with how um, I like how many of them are so good. And when I say that, and I don't mean it in a derisive way, I just mean like every single Canadian film that I saw was good. And like the team, Norm and Kelly and the filmmakers and everyone on their films who worked on all those films did an amazing job. And film festivals is a celebration of film for the filmmakers and for film fans. You know, if you have to work for a film festival, you better be a fan of film. And I'm um, like being around people who love films, you know, love talking about films, getting excited about films. And like, you can get that from listening to Norm. He's excited about the work he does. He loves what he does, you know, and like getting paid to do it is a bonus, <laughs> you know, you're like, I, I get to talk. I get to do this thing that I love, genuinely love so much. And I get paid to do it too. Yay. The best thing ever. Um, So again, thank you so much, Norm. And thank you so much to everyone who has been doing interviews for me for TIFF this year and for all the coverage I've been doing this year. This has honestly been probably, this year has been kind of hard at the beginning, but you know, things have been shaking up really well at, for the end of the year. And um, you'll find my other interviews for TIFF, of course, here in podcast format, but also on in video format. My YouTube channel, that's youtube.com slash at sign Carolyn underscore Heinz. That's H-I-N-D-S. And um, find my interviews there for TIFF for the Africa virtual roundtables which is african-american sorry african-american film critics association virtual roundtables you will find um links other links for carolyn talks and so here's what happened my other podcast you can go on my youth my twitter and my instagram that's carrie cnh12 c-a-r-r-i-e cnh12 and find me there talking about films posting links to my work which one of them related to TIFF was a piece that I wrote for the Kofit K Movie Today um, digital magazine where I talked about the Korean films that I saw at TIFF this year. I loved all of those films that I saw. 
wasn't the only one I wasn't able to see was Concrete Utopia, but I'm gonna get to see that eventually. And I like everyone in that cast is really good, but I really did enjoy this festival and covering it. And um, yeah, you'll find me there on social media and um, go to my R3 page that's a u t h or r y dot com. Find links to all of my podcasts, all of my writing, all of my interviews, all of my film analysis ever. <laughs> um, just go through them and find what you and you'll find links you can read them on the site but you can also find the external links to the original websites as well and um i think that is it i'm going to wrap up here so everyone until the next episode of carolyn talks stay safe bye